Welcome to Wine for Normal People, the podcast for people who like wine, but not the snobbery that goes with it. I'm your host, Elizabeth Schneider, author of the Wine for Normal People book and certified wine dork. And I'm MC Ice, just a wine-loving normal person. When was the last time you went to wineaccess.com slash WFMP? Wine Access is the sponsor of this show, and you should go to the page because I've just updated it with all new wines that I love. Get 10% off your first order and get some of the best wines that you can't get locally. Listen in the middle of the show for more details. Today, I have a different kind of show for you. And for international listeners and really any listeners, this might seem like it's only a U.S.-oriented show, but that is not true. We're going to discuss things like pricing structure, how prices arrived at, the factors that make distribution spotty in some places, how small brands are getting squeezed out of the wine market due to the system. And many of these concepts are applicable to everyone. For brands that sell to the U.S. from Italy to Australia to Moldova or Greece, what we're about to discuss is vital to their survival. We are going to welcome my friend and industry guru, Daniel Posner, the owner of the prestigious New York retailer Grapes, the wine company. Daniel joined the company in 2000. He was managing partner by 2004. And for the past 22 years, Daniel has been a wine consultant with clients from all over the world. He travels to wine regions and meets with producers and winemakers and winery owners. He knows the ins and outs of the New York wine scene. He's going to share some what I like to call the hot goss, the hot gossip. It's pretty fascinating for those of us on the outside. And Daniel also serves on the board of directors for the National Association of Wine Retailers. He was the president from 2011 to 2019. Daniel also often testifies before local agencies and state governments all over the U.S. on behalf of wine retailers. And he's been featured and quoted in every major publication, New York Times, Wine Spectator, Food and Wine, Forbes, The Wall Street Journal called him one of the most influential wine retailers in the U.S. So with that, you have a lot to live up to. Welcome, Daniel. No pressure. Thank you for having me, Elizabeth. Pleasure to be here. Stop doing so much stuff and then perhaps it won't be so much pressure. That's all I have to say. I want to talk to you about the question that a lot of people have. Where do babies come from? No, I'm just kidding. Where does wine pricing come from? And how do you arrive at a price when we go to Europe and we see that some of the bottles are like six euro and then all of a sudden you see it on the shelf here and it's 25 bucks? How does that happen? And can you walk us through the whole process of how that small producer in Burgundy that you work with winds up getting the wine here and where all of the money is going. All right. I'll answer the baby question second and the wine questions first. Okay, good. Because um, I'm really curious yeah. about the baby question. Yeah, I, I it's, missed it's that. Coming. It's, it's coming. Okay, um, good. How does the wine hit the shelf in the United States at a certain price versus where it is, say, in Europe? The simplest answer to that is what we have is what's called the traditional three-tiered system of selling wine in the United States. And that three tiers allows for not one, not two, but three markups on the wine before it hits the consumer's hand. Most marketplaces in Europe, if not all, they don't have that mandated system in place. So if you were selling your Chianti Classico for four euros out the cellar door, 
you might see it in a store there who's buying it direct from the producer for six euros, seven euros or whatever it might be. Even that might be considered a high markup, 50 to 100% or whatever it is. That same four euros out the cellar door in Italy to get it on the shelves, say here in New York where I'm located, you got an importer involved that's going to pay the four euros. Easy translation for numbers, let's just call that $5 a bottle. They are going to mark it up probably about 40% plus shipping costs, or they might try to gobble it in depending on the price of the wine, but it's hard to when it's an inexpensive wine because transport's going to cost about $1.50 to $2 a bottle to get in the U.S. So when you add that in, you're already at six fifty-seven dollars a bottle. Then you add in the markup of 40% and you're at 10 to $11 a bottle. Then they're going to sell it to a distributor. If they're not their own distributor, in New York, you may be. But even if you are in New York, you're going to add in your own markup because right. that's what you do. Why not? You're already at 11. You added another 30, 40, 50% on the distributor level. And all of a sudden you're at $16 a bottle, call it 15 to 16. And then you add in the retail markup, the traditional retail markup. I, I don't want to spoil anybody. Uh, is typically 50%. Sounds like a lot, but by and large, most of us then work backwards on discounts or offer sales. So most of us never actually see 50% markups, but if you do, then it's on the shelf for 22 to $23 a bottle. So that four euros that you might see for six, seven euros, you know, $8, in Italy, the same wine is actually going to be $23 a bottle on a shelf in New York, layers upon layers upon layers. Here's a question. This goes back to the fact that it was just in Tuscany. I go to Piedmont. You go to Piedmont a lot. The Barolo and Chianti and the Brunello producers and even Vino Nobile, they have gotten wise to this. And out the cellar door, their products cost the same amount as what we would pay here. You're not going to get any oh, great it's, it's deals a, if you go to Montalcino. 100% correct. We tell our customers, I want to say warn them, but we let them know in advance, no matter where you're going in the world to buy wine, you're probably not going to save money by buying it there. Mm -mm. And even if the producer uses that language of, you can't get this anywhere but our cellar door, yep. do the research first to confirm that is true. That includes domestic wineries. That includes obviously international wineries, whether you're in Burgundy, whether you're in Italy, they love selling out the cellar door because they're absorbing all of those markups I just mentioned straight into their pocket, which is totally fair, totally fine. But the reality is when people say, oh, I'm buying direct from a producer in Italy or, you know, in Montalcino, it's great. And they're like, well, what does it cost you? And they're like, oh, he's giving me a great deal. I'm paying. I'm like, well, you would have saved like $3 a bottle by buying it. <laughs> right. Because you add in the shipping cost, it's at least $20 a bottle to ship it here. So then you're losing uh, money on it. They've got like binders in these tasting rooms now that are like, here's our price list to get it into the United States. And you're like, oh, this is so easy. Well, you know, it's also easy going to your local wine store. Definitely have to be careful. It's a really great tip to remind people that you should always check to make sure that it's not available for shipping or for purchase in somewhere that you can get it because it is really, really expensive. They've completely gotten wise to this. I don't feel like it was always that way, though. Do you? They've gotten a lot smarter about charging the same price. I feel like it yeah. used to be cheaper than they realized that they were losing money and they were like, screw this, we're going to raise the price. Well, I think this is particularly the U.S. is particularly if you go back to where wine shipping became quote unquote legal in the U.S. back in 05, Granholm, in order to protect the distribution system, there's an unwritten handshake agreement amongst the wineries and their distributor partners that they're going to protect the distribution price, which again, inevitably helps us retailers too. So when you buy from a winery, by and large, again, say out in California or Oregon or Washington or here in New York or wherever you can go amongst the 50 states, if the wine is distributed 
widely and it's widely available, typically the winery price is going to be the same as the SRP price. Yep. They might throw in like free shipping or give a case discount back. It might come out a little bit. But again, similarly as going internationally, you're not saving a lot of money. And that just goes back now it's whatever, 18 years where now you can legally ship because obviously the distributors didn't want the wineries to legally ship. But now that you're able to do it legally, let, let's come up with plan B and how we can both help each other. Right. So collusion, which is not legal. But anyway, we'll get to that later. So you work with a lot of small producers. Mm -hmm. Why is it so hard for us to get wines from small producers? And how do you get these wines and other people don't? There is a very unspoken underbelly of who gets what wine and when and how. And it is not all how we would like it to work. If you're listening to this in Ohio, or you're listening to this in South Dakota, even Colorado, which has a pretty decent wine market, you're not going to be able to get a lot of these wines, as opposed to New York, which is why I look to my homeland a lot to get wine, because I can't get it here. What's going on here? We'll stay on the Burgundy example because I've had some of the wines that you get from Burgundy and they are awesome. So how do you get that and how come you get it and someone else doesn't get it? I think you have to start with one, you know, I'm based in New York. Starting just alone, the distribution import channels in New York are what they are. When you're going out of, you know, a port in France and you're trying to get your wines to the United States, well, what's the path of least resistance if it's a port of Elizabeth in New Jersey, right? So a lot of wine just funnels straight into there. You're dealing with major markets here between New York and New Jersey. And a lot of importers subsequently end up based here over the last probably, you know, almost near century. The geographic means is the first means um, into the U.S. But secondly, the scene that's in some major cities also plays a role in the wines you see. And that obviously then plays into wines coming in because of the importees into New York. And then it's the New York City metropolitan area is obviously a huge pocket of wealth in the United States for stars. It's a huge cultural scene, which makes it a huge restaurant scene and a huge wine scene and a huge spirit scene and a huge everything scene, right? right. So not to sound like a typical New Yorker, but this is kind of the mecca of everything here. It, it is. Um, it's good and bad for a New York retailer like myself. I'll start with the bad. We're competing with any number of great restaurants and great wine stores in New York for these allocations. When we're talking about store like Grapes the Wine Club, like ours, like, yeah, I think we have a great selection of 4,000 wines and spirits. We've curated that over 25 years or 26 years now, worked very hard at it. But that's not easy. That's not people walking in the door saying, hey, you know, do you want some extra DRC? I mean, that used to happen uh, 20 years ago for us, but that no longer is the case. So now we're fighting for those hot wines that everybody wants, whether they're Burgundy, Bordeaux, or Brunello, whatever it is. You know, you touched on, you know, my love for Burgundy. I mean, I've been in the wine business 23 years and I have not been to Burgundy since 2020. I'll go next year back again. I started November 1, 2020 in the wine business up until February of 2020. So basically 19 years. I think I was in Burgundy 18 times. Oh my gosh. Um, so when you're there one to two times a year, that gives you entree to small producers and large producers, a whole network. And I'm sure that 99.9% of wine retailers in the United States have never been to Bergen. No, right? I would so, agree. And that's yes. not a knock on them. We see especially small stores. You can't get off of work. You can't take the time, the travel, the expense, whatever it is. Or maybe you're reliant upon people to be able to take you, which is not really legal in New York State. So also I'm out of pocket for most of my trips. That 
plays a role as well. So it's a financial means of that. But for us at our store, it was always important to travel. And I learned that from previous owners. And so I started traveling to Burgundy young in my world of wine, and I just kept going. I have great relationships with large producers like the Durans, Louis Jadot, show you yeah. know, great producers yeah. that I've visited any number of times that we sell a lot of those wines. You can look at our inventory and you'll see we probably have a, a hundred SKUs from Jadot, for instance. Right. So it's not that we're beholden to just small producers, but again, I go to Jadot, I, I'm able to taste the wines, I'm able to pick out what I like the most, which is great. The importer of Jadot, and Jadot is owned by an American importer called Cobrand, and so they're based in your home area of Long Island. Oh, yeah. The wines, the wines got a great, come in They here, have a great so. portfolio, actually. And they right. do a lot for, Ita- they especially do a lot for Italian oh. wine education and stuff like that. I really appreciate them. Yeah, and that's and that's the example of the large. And then there's the example of the small that someone will tip me off and say, hey, Daniel, there's this new up-and-coming producer. You got to go taste them and tack on an appointment to that new small producer. I'll go taste and I'll say, well, who imports your wine? They'll say, nobody. Right. And so I'll reach out to an importer friend and I'll be like, we should bringing those wines into New York and and I'll take a lot of it. Are you saying the Woody Allen phrase, 98% of success is showing up? Uh, I think that's a large part of yeah, it. 98 think... might be a little bit high, but then you discover those producers and then five years later, they get known and everybody wants them. Daniel, how can you get so much of wine X? Like, well, I've been buying it since inception. Well, I right. want some. How can I talk to the importer? I'm like, you can't just call up the importer, the producer, be like, hey, I want your wine now that Wine Spectator or Wine Advocate or Jeb Dunnick or somebody all of a sudden discovered this producer. It should not work that way, right? If if Daniel Posner, Grapes the Wine Company, was first in line, well, heck, I should always be. No, it is true. The idea of allocation, that there is a limited amount of product and that it does not go to everyone. There is only so much wine to go around. What about small distributorships? My friend Steve owns a distributorship down here in North Carolina. They import and distribute also. And he is fighting it out with the big distributors every day and trying to survive. It is incredibly difficult for them also. Can you talk about these small distributors that all distributors maybe are not the same, that that tier that comes after the importer? To say all distributors are not the same and would be an understatement. You have what's now, I guess, considered in the U.S. this big three of distributors, or maybe there's a couple more, but when you're looking at Southern Glaciers and R&DC and Breakthrough, those are the top three. They occupy probably, I'll throw out a number, 80 to 90% of all wine spirits in this country if I sold through one of those distributors. Yep. And probably 60% is just through Southern Glaciers. So they occupy a big part of the space. So now your friend Steve, they're looking at 10 to 20% of the pie in the United States, not just in North Carolina, obviously. And places like New York, where there's hundreds of distributors, small, they're all just competing for that little small portion. And they want wines by the glass at all these top rated reviewed restaurants and the top retailers. And then you've got the big guys knocking on the door and like, and they're knocking on the door of the retailer, the restaurant, and the producer back in the other direction, right? Right. They've got deep pockets and all they got to do is See, oh, Steve discovered a great new producer down in Argentina. We want that producer now. Right. He's done a good job distributing it all through like great cities down there, and we could do a better job. So what do they do? They go down to Mendoza, and they knock on the door, and they're like, we'll pay two to three years cash ahead for your next three harvests. And then you're the producer like, wow, you'll give me that much cash up front? Steve can't do that. Right. So what happens? Then that producer goes. And then if they still don't like the answer, what do they end up doing? They end up buying Steve. They just take him over. 
And Steve might happy to be get out because he's exhausted. It's so God, much every work. day I wake up and it's a grind. Yeah, it's a grind. There's been a lot of consolidation of not just the distributors. Is the problem also that large companies like Gallo and the Wine Group, Constellation just sold all their low-tier brands to Gallo and the Wine Group and Bronco. There's all these large wineries. And, you know, I publish on my site. I think I'm the only person that does this. I publish on the site all of the fake brands. So it's called the Big Hulking Winery List. It's on, if anybody's listening to this and they're interested, it's on the resources tab on my site. Every time that someone- I, I had to cross-reference our selection, by the way, to that. Uh, before the show, I won't want to make see how many brands we sold. So. Yeah, these are the top 10. How much a pressure is there on the system because of consolidation of the producer versus the distributor? Or is it both and it's how they work together too? Yeah, I think a lot of it goes hand in hand. I think when you're, you're a small producer or a small distributor, even a small retailer, I mean, everything in this business is a grind. And so you're under a lot of pressure every day. If you're, if you're a small grower, in central California and you're waking up and you're got to get grapes harvested for one of those big hulking wineries. And God forbid, as we saw just now in Washington state, the big hulking winery <sighs> backs out, Yep. you know, that, then what do you, what do you do? And I'm not knocking Chateau Saint-Michel necessarily. They make a business decision like everybody else does. And you could argue Chateau Saint-Michel did wonders for the Washington state wine industry for the last few decades. I mean, they've really True. helped build that up. There's a lot of good and a lot of bad there. And you take the good with the bad and you assess accordingly. But there's not a lot of money to be made in this industry for most people in it. So you're really grinding it out for pennies on the dollar unless you are one of those huge, enormous players where volume really becomes dollars and dollars becomes volume. And it just keeps churning and churning. But that's a very selective group to get to. I'm nowhere near that personally. I don't have people on the show who are in that echelon. I want you to speak to this because there's a category on my list that there are partnerships. For instance, Gallo now imports Puro Pan and Allegrini. And some people objected to the fact that I put that on. But given what we're talking about, it is very important to understand that Puropan has it a lot easier than Pra or Inama because now they are being imported by Gallo. Every association with large wineries is a dollar going into their pocket. Whereas if you go with a something that's directly imported, that dollar is going to the producer instead. Agree with yes that? Yes and no. I mean, because some of those wines, you know, I think Anama has a national importer, for instance, I believe. But in terms of like a Gallo, yeah, Gallo was smart. They kept building and building. And what was the next step? Oh, we'll get into the import business, right? Right. And we'll start taking over these great brands. And I think like a Piero Pond and an Allegrini, which was at Winebow before, right? right. Winebow was huge And Winebow's a great that importer. That was a national import. Right. Well, now it's owned by venture capital money. So, you oh. know, it depends how you view, right? Leonardo Lacasio sold Winebow years ago, and it's been sold two or three times since. So even though that portfolio has remained relatively the same, when you look at a producer like Allegrini, and I've talked to producers all over the world, they kind of laugh at our system because when you look at and it doesn't have to be a large or small, but even a medium-sized winery, the logistics and the hoops to run through to get into the United States distribution channels are brutal. Now, if you're small enough, like brutally, brutally small, you're probably only going to go into a handful of markets. And that's going to start, say, in New York and California. Those are going to be the two markets you're probably tied into. And again, for one interest of port and in getting in ease, right? There's no Port of Ohio, to your point, to, to let <laughs> someone like, oh, you know, so you're going to have to hit a border. So your importer is probably going to be on either the Pacific side or the Atlantic. Side. Right. So 
that's how it's usually going to start for you. And if you and if you only got a couple hundred cases to import and your wine is good, you probably only need one state, right? You could just right. be in New York or yep. California or mix in. So the problem then becomes as you get bigger and bigger and you want to go into other states, well, a couple hundred cases, you know, there's 50 states here and you add in DC. So call it 51 states. If 300 cases come into the US, how are you distributing that? Are you sending seven cases to Kansas and four cases to North Dakota and eight cases to Minnesota? You know, And then there's costs involved in that. And all of a sudden the Minnesota merchants complain like, why is the wine so much cheaper in New York? Well, New York bought a couple hundred cases and Minnesota bought eight. There's all sorts of logistical issues there. And at the end of the day, producers, especially if you look at them from a farming standpoint, I mean, these people are farmers, they're hard workers as a grind. They just want to sell fermented grape juice. Right. They don't necessarily care where their wine goes. If we become big enough, it's easier to get with a national importer because then you don't have to talk to 20 different distributors or even 10 different distributors. You've got one importer you're talking to. So if you're Allegrini and you're Pierrepon and now Origiano's in that group, if you're one of those three pretty large producers in Italy, and if you're Argiano, which had a national importer before Gallo, Vias was importing it, but Gallo has greater clout, especially on domestic level. So they're already in big box for retail. They're right. already in even a lot of small retailers and they're in restaurants. So but it does encourage oh, the big. The whole right. system encourage c- consolidation. Right. So the, the more system, you go away, a- the more you go away from co-brand and Vias and Winebow, the more it is encouraging players who already have so much of the market. I actually think it's important for people to know that Gallo is importing these. I try not to buy these brands from the large wineries. I don't always succeed. I mean, sometimes they make really good wines. But I try my best because... I want those national importers to survive. I don't want them to go away because they are, even though they are seen as the evil whatever, they're certainly better, I think, than putting all of the power in one hand. This goes to my next question about mergers and acquisition activity on the producer side and then on the distributor side. And that's what we're pussyfooting around here. So there are three distributors really that run the entire U.S. market with a bunch of small ones, but those three own it. And then there's about 10 producers slash importers that hold about 70% of the market in the U.S. also. And then the rest is scraps. So it is illegal in the United States to have a monopoly. You deal with this all the time. You deal with the legal side of things. Why didn't the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, who is responsible for this, stop this before it happened? Because we are in a situation in the wine business where really now there is an oligopoly. There are a few companies that run the table and there's silent collusion between them. For instance, I remember when I worked for the big winery, one of the big things for us was if we're going to be with Southern Glaciers, well, it's great because they carry Kettle One vodka. So that means that we can sort of force the hand of the retailer or the restaurateur and say, hey, if you take in Kettle One, you should also take in five cases of gallon. We'll throw in like a, I mean, we used to bribe people. I don't know how legal that is anymore. I know New York is really buckled down on that, but we used to get trips away. I hosted a trip to Italy with a bunch of retailers and distributor reps and things like that. We gave away flat screen TVs. We'd give away gift cards nonstop. That was our main way to get people to sell our wine. But it was very important for us also to sell in with 
Kettle One or whoever, you know, Absolute, whatever it is, whatever is the call brand, because there are no call brands in wine. Nobody needs the specific wine brand. So there's all this collusion and weird stuff that goes on. Can you discuss that, please? Yeah, I'm in a little bit of a different part of the world from that, just because of our selection and how we have elected to carry on our business. But certainly there is a lot of that. Well, I have to sell this. I have to sell that. I have to deal with this distributor. You know, and in New York, we went a long time without Southern Wines and Spirits. Southern came into the market less than 20 years ago. I think it was about 17-ish years ago. To this day, you, I have a lot of retail friends who are like, oh, I can't stand working with, you know, I'm like, well, so stop. Right. It's your choice. Well, Daniel, what would I do? I, I don't know. What would you do? You, so you just don't sell some of their brands. Well, I have to sell the liquor they sell. I don't think you have to do anything. It's your choice. And we took the step a few years after that wasn't really happy with their customer service, we stopped buying from them. So we don't sell any of their spirits or any of their wine, only special orders for clients. We made that decision and other retailers would come to me and, Dan, how do you do that? I'm like, well, walk into my store, look at our selection and tell me what I'm missing. And if you can find anything I'm missing, I'll probably be able to give you an answer why I don't think I need to sell it. And for example, we've never sold a bottle of Tito's vodka. Tito's is the number one SKU in America. Our store has never sold a bottle. It's wholesaled by Southern Glaciers, and it's fine. Southern, that's their prerogative on how they do business, my prerogative, how I do mine. Uh, I have a good relationship with a number of people that work there. But back to your point of talking about dollars going to Gallo or here and there, like I prefer not to have Grapes the Wine Company money go there. I always reserve the right to change my mind at some point, but for the moment, and it's been 13 years or so, that's what we have elected to do. If every retailer every restaurant, if everyone spoke up against and put our foot down, well, that would end that system. But that's really hard to do. Maybe people don't understand how much power we have oh. as an industry seated. But I don't understand why did the federal government not stop this? If you take the big three, if you take Breakthrough, Southern Glaciers and RMDC, uh. they control 80 plus percent of the market. And I don't think yeah. that really fits the standard of our normal antitrust laws, but yet it keeps happening. They keep acquiring more brands. So what happens? It's obviously issues with alcohol. It's so tightly regulated. And the 21st Amendment granted to states' rights, not federal. So federal oversight is limited in all that too. You have a complicated system here that has clearly a right path to take, but whether legally they can take that path, that's the issue. I mean, when Southern merged with Glazers, I think at the time it was number one and number three, and they allowed to happen. And then they rejected number two and number four. I think it was Breakthrough and RNDC wanted to merge or something like that. I don't remember which two that the federal government said no to after that. Perhaps they realized the error in their ways and they said, whoa, we can't allow this one. We already allowed the other one. When you talk about big three, but you know, one of them is like 60%. I mean, right. so- and it really dictates a lot of, especially in markets that are smaller, what you can get and what you can't get. And they are sure. running the market. And, and you they mentioned also, collusion. Yeah, the Talk collusion at the fixing. retailer level is also a problem, though. You've got collusion price, at the producer level. Alone, if, I, if you have to buy Kettle One, as you used an example, at a certain price from a distributor, and you're only permitted to buy from that one distributor, which has basically happened now at every market. I mean, when I started in the business, you had multi-distributors for various liquors, you know, Bacardi and Dewars at two different distributors. Oh, that's kind of nice. everything's reduced to one. Theoretically, again, they had a handshake to stay in line with each other, but then that 
went away and now you have one and you know when you could only buy from one distributor that, that's not a really fair market the consumer has choice but us as restaurants and retailers we, we virtually have no choice and when you deal in states that mandate franchise laws for instance and we can get into the weeds on any of that which i know we won't but the price fixing is very much a part of it just working off the standard markups alone which are very aggressive i actually do think that retailers generally have the consumer's best interest at heart and they're the only ones that really do in the end i mean the producers want to produce a very high quality product but you only yep. have the retailers who are hopefully defending the idea like no a consumer's not going to pay this much for it but you don't have a choice when there's this system in place this is what goes on behind the scenes in the wine industry and it hamstrings everyone from the consumer level as well because we are forced to pay prices or buy things that maybe we wouldn't want to buy or we don't know we don't even know we're buying in the case of the wineries because they work on this system of power but I do want to talk about another power player in the industry, which is the New York wine scene. Now, you have already set the table for me by saying New York is a very powerful place. Now, you have dined and are friends with some very famous, and I put this in quotation marks because I don't think sommeliers are famous, but famous sommeliers and writers and other retailers, and you attend trade and tasting events with them. And they seem to run the trends and the market and they have so much power but they are Beautiful. completely out of touch with the rest of us a lot of times when people try things that are hot in new york they are roundly rejected although these trends stay around because well that's what they're drinking in new york how does that cycle get broken because i think what that winds up doing is putting wine that people don't like in the market and perpetuating people's fear that they're doing it wrong, which is, of course, you know, the thing that I am always dealing with. I don't want anybody to think they're doing wine wrong. You should never feel vulnerable when you walk into a wine shop. So what do we do about this? I mentioned earlier, and I don't regret saying it, but New York is certainly like a mecca for a lot of things, including wine and food. Fashion, um, art, and yes. And therefore, yeah. And, and therefore, trends are going to start here. And then... A psalm, because I know that's where you're headed with this. Psalms taste something and they want to be the next trendsetter and maybe they decide something's great and they're going to put it on their tasting menu and maybe they're at a Michelin two-star or a one-star and they put it on the seven-course tasting menu and one of them is this wide X and it's listed with a second course and it's paired with some fish you will never eat again. And <laughs> all of a sudden everyone's like, oh, I think I like this. And then the restaurant picks up steam because it gets great reviews everywhere. It's the hottest thing. And then that wine picks up steam because the who's who of diners are eating there and perhaps they're enjoying it, perhaps they're not, but they're talking about it. And I, I used the example of, of years ago, I went to a lunch about sherries and I sat in the room with the famous people as you would describe. And we were talking about dry sherry and at the time and still is there, we struggle selling dry sherry in our store. We just don't have a lot of takers for it. And some of the songs in the room, and there was like 15 of us probably sitting together and deciding the next trend that suckers will fall for, I guess. <laughs> and some of them said dry sherry in a tasting menu is the next big thing. And I looked at a couple of them. I'm like, come on, get out of here. I'm like, oh, Daniel, tr trust us. They pair so well with food and it's really universal and it's great and people are going to want it. But like, you guys are out of your mind. It will never work like that. Dry sherry is such a unique 
taste. It takes a unique person to enjoy it. And it does work well with a lot of foods, but you have to like dry sherry. Right. So that mantra in New York was going on. It only lasted a couple of years, but I don't think it ever took off to that extent because I think people voted against it, you know, right. whether it was restaurant lovers and food lovers, wine lovers, retailers, but people said, whoa, I don't want dry sherry with my food. We'll take a step away from this really fascinating podcast. And I want to read something to you. This is from patron Teresa Kay. I am officially and proudly a WFMP patron. I knew when I signed up how much work you put into the show and wanted to show my support. As I joined the wine club and got my first shipment from Wine Access, I was blown away by the level of detail you put into making this a great experience for club members. I put this week's patron hangout on my calendar and was reflecting on the amount of work you put into your entire program and how much I've learned. There was no doubt I needed to upgrade my Patreon membership. I cannot thank you enough for the down-to-earth, funny, and amazing experience you bring to us. Please think about joining Patreon because when you join, you will then see the things that Teresa and the other members have seen. Teresa is a friend now, as are many of the patrons who choose to interact regularly on the page. Check it out today, patreon.com slash wine for normal people. It is a very, very amazing experience. And if you're willing to put in a little bit of time, you'll find a community of people that are supportive, kind, and just the kind of people that I think a lot of people wish that they had in their lives. And we're all talking about wine. Also, let's talk about Wine Access, which she mentioned in her testimonial. Wine Access is an amazing service. And if you have not checked them out and gotten 10% off your first order by going to wineaccess.com slash WFMP, please do it today. And I'll give you another reason to do it today. I just went through my entire page. And if you have not been on wineaccess.com slash WFMP, you will see that it is all different wines, things that you can't get in many cases locally. And these wines are stunning. There is an array of prices. There's lots of things that are completely affordable. There are things that are a little bit more and everything in between. But the one thing I can tell you is that they're all excellent quality because Wine Access has a team that goes to suppliers and works with them to get the best wines that we cannot get access to. They've opened so many doors to me and introduced me to new wines that I would not normally know about. They're great supporters of the podcast. Without them, this podcast would not go on just like without the patrons. So follow Teresa's lead, join Patreon, and sign up for wineaccess.com slash WFMP. And if you're interested in joining the wine club, you can go to wineaccess.com slash normal and join the wine club for $150. You get six bottles and it's a shipment quarterly. Fantastic wines. I pick them out. I do the videos. I do a special letter. And if you're a patron, you get a special live tasting also. Wineaccess.com slash WFMP. And don't forget, bunch of new classes are up. If you've missed Wines of Italy before the overview, it is a spectacular class. People love it. It's a great first class to take if you've never taken a class before. And you can also look for interesting red wines. We've got some very, very interesting reds this time. Sign up early and make sure that you have enough time to get those wines, wines of Loire as well. You will learn so much about the wines that we taste. It's like a live podcast for people who are really, really interested in learning more about wine. That's wineformnormalpeople.com slash classes. Now let's get back to the show with Daniel Posner. There's 
there's some great stuff that is coming up. So make sure you stay tuned for the end of the show where there's a bunch of hot goss, as we like to call it, the hot gossip session. Now let's get back to the show. There's trends that do last, and I think they last with some purpose, and other ones don't. You know, the the orange wine scene or the natural wine scene has obviously been adopted, and that's kind of stuck over X number of years now. And in our store, we do taste a, a large selection of the wines we bring in, particularly the under, I'd say, $50 category and definitely the under $20 category. We basically try to taste everything before it hits the store. So we taste a lot of orange wines. We taste a lot of natural wines before we decide what we're going to bring in. And we take we take some in and we don't take in others. And there's some good there and there's some bad, but that describes a lot of other wine categories too. And as you know, by large, most wine that's produced is really bad. So yeah, or um, just but this blah. one, yeah, and this one's a struggle for people because I do think it's being forced upon people in a lot of places. I've gone to restaurants in New York over the past decade. I've looked at wine lists, and I'm pretty well educated in wine. And I've looked over at my wife, and I've said, I don't recognize one wine on the list. And, and how about and that's none me of them being look the good? Twenty years. Yeah, none yeah, of them well, look good either. Good. That's the big problem, yeah. right? Is that you yeah. know enough yeah. about the regions and about what yep. the grapes are to think, not only do I not recognize these producers, I have no interest in drinking any of these. For me, it's not about the experimentation and the creativity, but it's more about then everyone saying, now we have to do this because they're doing it there. And you know the press then exporting these ideas that... The U.S. is a very big place and it's not going to work everywhere. And these trends are often very ill-advised. I mean, like if it's something that I think most people can get behind, I think it's fine. But there is a lot of really, especially in the last 10 years, there's been some really weird stuff that's been pumped out of New York that just doesn't work for most people's taste buds. As I've said before, people don't like certain wines because they have taste buds. We have a fairly decent agreement on what tastes good within reason in the wine world. And when people go outside of that, like the emperor has no clothes. And I don't think there's enough people. I mean, certainly I'm doing it, but I don't know that there's enough people really saying the emperor has no clothes when these people come up with the sherry thing. I mean, you did it. To me, it's a little bananas. The other influential thing is critics, critics and wine writers. What you're thinking about the role of critics and what's going on with them. They, to me, it seems like their significance has plummeted, but I don't know. I don't know because you're in retail, so you know what sells. Are people still score obsessed or are they willing to take a chance? I think obsessed is a strong word. I think 20 years ago, I would have used that word and maybe 15 years ago. But when I started in the wine business, you had two major publications at play. You had Wine Spectator and Wine Advocate. Right. That was really it. So Everybody turned to them. And at that time in 2000, I mean, Robert Parker, he had only just hired his second critic. He tasted everything up until the late 90s that was published at Wine Advocate. So That's crazy. he was covering everything until he hired a, a Burgundy critic. And Wine Spectator was always a bit more spread out in terms of their critics and what they covered. But as time went on and first blogs, I guess, started and blogs started talking a little bit about wine, trying to give consumers access you know, you had a lot of wine forums and chat rooms where people would talk about wine. And then you had critics that were working for the other publications breaking off, kind of the opposite of right. consolidation. Critics for those publications generally are not paid that well, and they work very hard, and those publications do a great job for them. But they just take like a James Suckling, who was at Wine Spectator for 30 years, right? Forever, and Probably yeah. made a decent wage at Wine Spectator, and all of a sudden he broke off on his own 
and he found his own way um by giving everybody a 91 just as hard well and, and you know and in, 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 in fairness to him he came out saying that he would not score wine less than 90 points so oh he did oh i didn't know that print, okay. yeah, when he first came out he said he would not if he rated a wine less than 90 he would not publish the score i believe was what i've it seen was. So an 89 was before out of him he must have, it could be yes. he might have changed and, but it's never but, yeah, below but that point, that's but, interesting no he never gives anything but, but, like everything's a 91 you kind of know if you're a retail lease and hopefully even as a consumer that's well educated you know that going in like a james suckling 91 how much weight does it carry versus a james suckling 98 versus a wine spectator 94 versus whatever you have to calibrate accordingly but now what's happened with critics you have so many it right. keeps growing and even out of the uk now even decanter has spit out a bunch of wine critics that have taken on their own publications and and now in the u.s you know even in the new york area like obviously antonio galoni created vinuous Burke out of Meadows, and now people read Jasper Morris. You have Jeb Dunnick, obviously, with his own publication out of Colorado, and et cetera. And it just keeps growing and growing. So the good news is we're not really reliant on one critic anymore, which was the big problem with the fine wine market before. To his right. credit, Robert Parker became too important for people. Now you have so many. It's like when a customer comes in, we don't have shelf talkers at our store. And about 10 years ago, a consumer came in the store said, I, I'm looking for those. And she couldn't describe it. And I was like, well, you mean the shelf talkers on the bottles? She said, yeah, I, I usually buy wines off of shelf talkers that are 90 or above. And I said, well, let me know if I could help. And if something looks good, I'm sure I can find a 90 point rating by someone out there. <laughs> and she didn't really like that response, of course, nor should anyone, but that was just me trying to be funny, my lame attempt. But that's the truth now. Every wine has gotten 90 points, whereas 20 years ago, 90 points meant something. So now it's diminished and now nine, you know, everything gets crazy scores. And as a consumer, you either A, have to ignore it or B, actually read the tasting notes. Scary right. enough. You can't just look at the number or you look at other ways. And that other way could be you find a, a wine merchant you can trust, yes, which is I a think great way of doing it. But huge. But again, wine merchants, how knowledgeable are they? I mean, knocking my own industry, like a lot of them are kind of glorified cashiers. They don't taste wine the way that the wine critics do, right? We can knock any wine critic, but if they're tasting thousands of wines a year and the retailer's tasting a few dozen or whatever, are you going to rely on them? It's really tricky to be a wine consumer, especially as prices just keep rising and rising and you don't get that opportunity to be like, oh, mix me up a six pack that I can try for $10 a bottle. That's hard to do these days. So you really have to find someone you can trust. And if it's a critic, great. If it's a wine retailer, great. If it's a New York Psalm that you love, that's wonderful too. I mean, it's hard to find people who are not in someone's pocket also. I think that's the other problem. Well, that, and then you have influencers now, right? right in that. And influencers- uh, They're all in people's uh, pockets. They're not independent. No, they're not. And that's what people have to know going in when they're influencing a brand on social media. Yeah, it's a paid partnership. Sometimes it says it, sometimes it does not. But if you're a, a wine consumer and you're looking at one of those people and you see they've got- 10,000 or 100,000 or 500,000 followers. You should really drink this champagne. It's great. Are they really doing that free of charge? Of course not. So they're in business well, I too. Am. So- I have stayed independent and I'm going to give my plug again. Patrons, thank you for keeping me afloat. I have had to roll with the punches to do that because I never, I have been offered by many of those large wineries to do things. And I've said no 
every single time. The only money I've ever taken is from wine regions for educational purposes, but I won't take money from brands because I never wanted to be that person. I, I wanted to be able to publish that big hulking winery list without having a partner say, no, you can't put that on there. But it is a slog. So exception to the rule. I yeah. am a complete I mean, exception to the rule. And I need to, again, thank my patrons on Patreon because without support from them and also Wine Access, who is my partner, but most of those people that you see on Instagram are in someone's pocket. There is a reason for that. Um, yep. I want to talk real briefly about the cases that you've been involved in. I just got a note from a patron, Neil M., who's a lawyer in the Virginia, Maryland, D.C. area. And he told me about a case against Vino Shipper, who is a very important wine shipping logistics company. In your role as the head of the National Association of Wine Retailers, you have testified in so many of these wine shipping cases, especially Tennessee Wine and Spirits Retailer Association versus Thomas. But you're still fighting this. When is this ever going to end? It's like two steps forward, two steps back. We just wind up standing still. The Supreme Court keeps ruling on these things in the U.S. And then we just keep getting these stupid protectionist measures from the states. And you're just continually fighting. Is this ever going to end? I mean, what's particularly dangerous about this latest Vino Shipper Virginia case is it's a court case. So we'd accept when we lose legislation because state legislatures are by and large getting literally suitcases full of money to serve an agenda that perhaps you and I disagree with, but that's just the reality of how government works. Let's be clear Courts, who they're getting that money from. That, they're getting that money from those 80%, those distributors, and also some uh -huh. of the larger producers, but mostly the distributors are putting money in their pockets to stop shipping. Because if you get wine shipped uh -huh. to you, they're saying that you will buy less wine from them. And that may be true, but I mean, well, it's free it's choice. It's becoming less true because if their hands in the pocket of 80%, the wine is probably coming from them at some point, just maybe not directly in that state. That's what I try to talk to them about, but it's just in one ear out the other. I'm like, well, it, it's the wine went through a distributor. It's probably yours. But when we lose a court case like this, it's dangerous. When judges go rogue, I guess, as I would call it, and this decision is particularly alarming, it does involve wineries, not necessarily wine retailers, but the decision imposed, they're asking a shipping company to obtain five different permits to ship a case of wine on behalf of a winery in, say, California, because that's where they're based. Right. So if you're Winery X in Sonoma, there's wineries X, Y, and Z, and they're using, in this case, this Vino Shipper company, and you're just dropping off cases of wine to Vino Shipper, and you're asking them to cover the fulfillment for you because it's cheaper for Vino Shipper to get, obviously, better common carry rates versus that small winery in Sonoma to do it on their own. Virginia has now said that in order for Vino Shipper to legally ship into the state of Virginia, if I'm reading it correctly, they have to get a permit to be allowed to receive the customer's order. They have to get a permit that allows them to purchase the wine from the wineries. They have to get a permit to select and pack the wine in the boxes for shipments. They have to get a permit that allows them to affix the shipping in the over 21 labels on it. And then the fifth one, which um, is really vague to me, is actually tendering the package to the common carrier to deliver to the customer. Many, many, many of my friends who own small wineries in Sonoma work with Vino Shipper. And I know Stephen, who's one of the, the managing partners, and they do really good work. 
and they are trying their best to figure out legal ways to help wineries. In fact, when we did our underground wine event, we did mixed packs from small wineries. They helped facilitate gathering the wine and shipping it out. And without them, we never would have been able to do it because they are one of the few that have figured out legal ways to do it. It's really, really bad when we start to see stuff like this and you are just slaying dragons constantly. I mean, you're out of the game a little bit because you're emeritus, but still. I'm on the board still. Yeah, you're still on the board. So I mean, two steps back, I would argue we go two steps forward, three steps every time. I mean, we've made some progress. Over the last, you know, I've been a part of NAWR for 15 years. It's a very frustrating world we live in, even in my own home state, where I talk to retailers here that are fighting against us. We are the mecca of wine. Do you think a store out of state, if we allow them to ship directly into the state where we charge permit, excise, and sales tax, do you think a consumer in Midtown Manhattan is going to buy from that store over you, assuming they can get the wine locally? Paint me the picture of where that would conceivably happen. It never will. But giving the consumer the choice is the right move. You mentioned earlier about retailers being on the consumer side. That's where I struggle with them because obviously in this world, in every industry, people are out for themselves, except for you and I, of course. But people can't get around that. They just see the the headline of like, oh, Los Angeles retailer can ship to New York. That's going to destroy me. That's not going to come anywhere close to destroying you. And then you can go back to your customer and be like, look, isn't this a great world? I can ship to California. They can ship here. And shouldn't that be the way it is? I mean, this is wine after all. It's nothing that should be out of bounds. The legal product we're selling. And in Tennessee, we really thought in 2019, in that case, the Tennessee Wine and Spirits Retail Association versus Thomas, I mean, that was a huge win for us. I mean, there's no doubt when you look at the U.S. Supreme Court, you look at the decision written, it was Granholm was 5-4 back in 05. We were 7-2 in 2019. So we actually extended it further. Um, we always Cross party about, lines, know, right? Politics. Cross, yep. it didn't wine matter. politics is yep. not partisan not politics. politics. Nope. And your dissenter is always going to be Clarence Thomas because he's all about states' rights. And so you know he's not going to be for it. So that's always you knock off one and Gorsuch was the other. The other seven justices in 2019 saw our way through this in that you cannot discriminate against out-of-state retailers for in-state gain. The decision is so clear-cut and so well-written and so decisive that there should not be any question since 2019. Yet, you have federal justices in this country, including up in Michigan two years later, that ruled the exact opposite way and basically said the Supreme Court was wrong, which I'm not a constitutional lawyer, nor do I play one on television, (laughs) but I doubt that that happens often to say that the Supreme Court got it wrong and you're going to rule against them and that's going to be okay. But that's what happened up in the circuit up there. And so we went 12 steps forward with that decision and then we went 20 steps backward after that. And so this decision too, it's just mind boggling that we still can't get past whether it's in the legislature or in the courts to see that the avenue here to take is just to allow the consumers to decide. We're taking adult signatures, we're charging taxation, We're doing everything you want us to do. So what is the problem? It's just protectionism, right? It's protection. And they they use fraud as an argument. Oh, we don't, we have no control. But again, going back to the fact that we probably bought it through the distributor here locally. So is it fraudulent? We bought the goods from you in New York instead of buying it from you in California or Texas or Michigan or whatever it is. It's the same product. So you're saying that your own products are fraudulent is what you've done. And I'm 
just to explain what you're saying, the way that that can happen is that distributors carry different products in different markets. In New York, Chicago, or any of the majors, Southern Glaciers may have a much broader selection of wines in the New York market than they do in New Mexico. So if you order, it likely came from one of those large distributors. That's how that works, is that not everybody's carrying the same things in every market. But likely, if you're controlling 80% of what's there, it's going through one of you in another state. That's how that works. Sorry, I just wanted to explain that. I don't want to take up too much of your time. But Tom Wark told me a few years ago that you have all of the hot goss, all of the gossip, We love fun, juicy tidbits about the wine industry. So Sherry Lehman is on the table. Wine retailer, one of the iconic retailers in New York, went out of business under complete scandal and shame. You also interacted with Rudy Kurniawan, who, if anybody's seen the movie Sour Grapes or followed that, he was a complete fraud and Everyone was obsessed with him. And again, no one questioned the fact that he was doing all of this. It was crazy. It was nuts. So pick a good story for us and play us out with some good gossip, Daniel. I could do a couple. I'll go in left field for you on this one. A bunch of years ago, there was a company called The Grateful Palate, which was importing Australian wines. I had a farmer in Australia start cold calling me. I will preface to this day, I still don't know who it was. He would call me and honestly wouldn't give me any information. And and this all feeds into kind of what you were talking about. For some reason, people like to feed me gossip. I do love to gossip. I've always loved to gossip. My mother called me a Yenta growing up. So uh, <laughs> no surprise that even in this world that people love to share stories with me. But the Grateful Powell was a very powerful importer of Australian wines. They had a bacon of the month club that was very popular, separate of wine. Um, wow. This farmer who was selling them grapes because they had a lot of brands that they owned themselves, which is popular importers, you know, end up creating brands and owning them or whatever. And he forecasted what was going on in Australia. And he said, this company's going out of business. Like, the Grateful Palate's going out of business. How could that be? They make all these, even back then, 99 point Robert Parker wine advocate wines. Right. It's crazy. They import them all. And he's like, they're no longer paying growers down here. We're all suffering and you got to tell the story. And he would not even tell me his name. And he would call me once a month with updates for about a year. And then finally, he got into stories about free trips that critics were taking. And I went to the Wall Street Journal, one of the journalists who was always asking me for quotes on some articles in the wine world. And I said a bit to him, he blew up. At the time, I think it was in 2009, on the front page of the Wall Street Journal was the questionable ethics of the wine advocate. Broke. Wow. And that was when I started learning about Argentina and Australia. It was all commingled. And, and again, I was young in the wine business and I believed a lot of things that were told to me. And I was like, come on, this isn't really happening. And, and I wish to this day that that farmer would reach out because I really don't know who he was. And as it turned out, the Grateful Palace filed bankruptcy protection in Australia. They kept their American business open. So oh they sell wine. It was it created smartly a separate LLC down there and they screwed over farmers down there. And, and obviously, I guess everyone eventually survived. But even similar to what may happen in Washington State now, they were, these farmers were so beholden to a couple of producers to buy right. their grapes. And they were two to three years, as I found out, in arrears. Oh, my gosh. But they would let it go because, like, well, we know we're going to get paid eventually. And, you know, that even forecasts into there was a merchant out in Berkeley called Primer Crew that was the same way that was operating in business for 30 years. 
and people would be like, well, we know they're good for the money, so we'll keep sending them wine. And then all of a sudden when they went out, it was 70 million in the hold of consumers. And you fast forward to a Sherry Lehman now, I mean, Sherry Lehman, you know, in business almost a hundred years, you know, yeah. you know, 80, 89 years or whatever the number is. I mean, Sherry Lehman is an iconic brand, an iconic name and a great wine store, not only in New York, but in America and the world. It's sad. It's very sad to see what's happened. And unfortunately, what seems to be unfolding in terms of criminal behavior makes it worse, the allegations, if they're true, because it's one thing to just kind of go out of business or bankrupt. But when you're looking now at the potential damage caused by what went on and the allegations, like I said, of, you know, whether theft or the employees were stealing or who was the, or the owners were stealing from the allegations that are unfolding are, you know, they had a wine storage business and they might've been reselling wine out of their storage facility. Oh my gosh. To build up cash. The big allegation comes, they sold a lot of wine to a collector down in North Carolina. And it then was not there was, me. There was, I, I'm going to check your cellar. And okay, find out please. If the wines are I don't there. have no, a seller. So I think the wines actually made it down there. And then an employee just told on them to somebody and then the wines were returned and they said it was an error that those wines were not supposed to be sold, $350,000 order. So it's definitely in the news. I hope not, but I would gather there'll probably be more of those allegations coming out. In addition, there's a lot of lawsuits that have fallen upon them on wine features not being delivered. and Stole money, stole wine. Know, I, I don't know if they got rich off of this or they were, whether they were just trying to pay bill. Right. They were in arrears in so many ways. So that 300 plus thousand potential sale, was anyone pocketing that money or were they using it perhaps to pay rent? Right. Back rent or back sales tax owed or back payroll. I, I don't well, know. They're on Madison Avenue, aren't they? They're, they're, the, yeah, they're they moved to Avenue? Park Avenue. So Park they, Avenue. They yeah. Park. They, I mean... they, they used to own their building on Madison. And that was one of the differences. I think Premier Crew, for instance, 70 million in the hole. Like, it seemed like that owner was, was pocketing a lot. And he went to jail for a number of years. I think he's out now. Is there any scandal that you have heard of that surprised you because you've seen all of this, right? You've seen all this underbelly. So I would like to know if there's anything that you were like, I did not see that coming. Or is there anything that could shock you? Rudy was an interesting one because I first met Rudy out in LA. It was like in 2002 or three. I was in the back room of a wine auction. I'll never forget it. He was sitting in the front. He had a little poodle on his lap. And he was bidding on all this American Cabernet and just having his paddle up. And, and I asked a friend of mine next time, who's that guy? And he's like, oh, yeah, I haven't met Rudy. He's like the new latest top thing out here. And so I got introduced to him. And at that time, as I mentioned, he was, he was buying like Opus and Camus. And this is the early 2000s. And then within a couple of years, he was buying a lot of great Burgundy. And from us, he was buying a lot of great Bordeaux. We were similar in age. I didn't hobnob with him a lot, but I met him a bunch of times and I used to send, I still do send our top clients a holiday card for my family. And back then, I remember the first time I sent it to like our top 100 clients, he was the only one to respond with an email. I'm like, Daniel, give a beautiful family. Um, wow. Thanks for sharing. I wish I saved that card when I had his autograph on it, but right. uh, that was his real name. And I will say, I went to the Doris Duke auction in New York with all the great old champagne and all that. And at the time I still was with my old business and it was in 2004, right before we split up. And Rudy walked up to my ex-business partner in front of a number of people in the audience and accused my ex-business partner of selling him fraudulent old DRC. Oh my gosh. And I'll never forget it because my old business partner, we, we had a very good relationship back then. And in terms of honesty, I, he never sold fake wine to my knowledge. And I looked at this guy at the time, I can't believe, in front of people. He, and it was so ironic because within two years, he was selling 
$25 million auctions worth of fake wine. And it was almost like foreshadowing of what he was trying to set up. Right. Perhaps my old business partner, he's going to take the fall for maybe inevitably what I'm about to do. And I don't right. know if that was the case, you know, because they had to be separated, screaming and yelling ensued for about 45 seconds. Oh, my and gosh. Like, oh my and I was like, oh, my God. I, yeah, I was like, I can't believe this is happening in this room with prominent wine collectors, prominent merchants. It was kind of a wild scene. And that was, like I said, in 2004. And then he's selling his cellar a couple of years later and continuously at these 10, 20, 30 million dollar clips. And so much of that wine was fake. To this day, I always wondered whether he intended someone else to take the fall for him and be like, well, I told everyone this guy was selling fake wine. Or maybe he wanted was, to see how your partner would react yeah. as a yeah. like, okay, this is how I should react if somebody accuses yeah. me eventually. And my partner you know? was pretty, he was the European and he was very as calm and collected as you could be in that. I don't know if I would have been in the same, but he was Fairly, I mean, he screamed back, but it wasn't like to the intent that perhaps right. somebody else may have. And I, I, we just sat there and it took me a couple of minutes like, oh, what just happened there? That sounds and very was, staged for, on Rudy's yeah, part. Yeah, like I said, I look back on it at the time, like, was that staged? And again, you know, I know there's an episode of American Greed on it. His situation was just pure greed. People say, why did he do it? Well, he did it because he could. And right. I went to a very prominent wine collector's birthday party. I think it was a 70th at the time in New York. It was at Veritas, which was a great, well-known, talk about hot nami restaurant of Busu. And everybody had these crazy wines there. You know, you, you would have thrown up. But um, And I remember being in the back and a couple of us tasted this 45 Rumier Moussini at the time. Wow. And someone spoke aloud and was like, this wine's totally fake. <gasps> this was in the midst of that going on. No one had accused Rudy of selling fake wine, but clearly for a Rudy seller. He's like, I only paid 8000 Ford, who gives a shit? It was like, Come on. Like, that was his comment. Um, wow. I was like, gosh, this is not where I want to be right now. And then, like, and, then, and then you fast forward, that same person, I remember one of the La Follets had brought a 71 Romani Conti that had kind of a low fill and the bottle had disappeared off his table and they couldn't find it for like an hour. And then the Somme who was running his table found it at another table. It was still like half full. The wine was totally turned. It was vinegar. It was seemingly authentic but not the point and this guy started screaming yelling at the and i will mention the sum's name because it's pretty well known and and he just took it on the chin where this collector screamed same guy screaming out, you ruined my bottle look you let it go they shook it up and i was like wine was ruined well before you brought it into this dinner tonight so those are kind of the unfortunate sides of it. but rudy was it was disappointing and we kind of got out of that really old wine world as a merchant at that point because it just wasn't worth the risk reward for us. So I always tell people to be careful how they yeah. buy. And obviously there there is careful measures in place and hopefully enough to avoid, you know, what a hardy rodent stock was obviously one of the first. Yeah. Oh, that was a great Rudy book. Kearney that billionaire's vinegar. Wow. Yeah. He disappeared he never to be then, seen again. I think he had passed away a couple of years ago. They yeah. had come out, but yeah, he had vanished very quietly. All right. So I've got one last question for you. Consumers have changed over the years. We're looking at your crystal ball now. We have seen in all the wine trade, and I know people are always saying, no, I'm trying to keep it alive. Worldwide, wine consumption is going down. Wine consumption in the U.S. is going down. Where is that happening? Meaning, is that happening at the bottom level and people are still drinking good stuff? What's going to happen with the wine world? I have a pretty set view on what I think, and I, I don't think that... 
people like us and the people listening to the show are the people that are going to be dropping out of the market. But I do think that wine as a casual beverage, that growth may be dropping off and we may see a lot of that bottom end of the market go away. What do you see? Well, I'll cover both that, but you, you stole my thunder on, you know, the casual wine drinkers disappearing for any number of reasons. And it starts with affordability. Wine has become too expensive. And so the casual wine drinker that might be able to go into their wine store and find, you know, a quality $6 bottle, that's really hard to do now. So now you're looking at $10 bottle and that's, that's real money to people. You're 50 to 60% more than you budgeted just a decade ago. And, and the good news for the consumer is there's other opportunities for that casual wine drinker. Now you have RTDs, it's huge, ready to drink. Ready content. to drink, yeah. You know, you've got the high noons of the world and the white claws that started really attacking cans and making it more accessible. Before that, you had the beer boom of craft beer. And then you have the spirits movement, the craft spirits movement that has gobbled up everything to the point where do you want to open up a bottle of wine and maybe pour half of it down the drain and waste the money? Or you open up a good bottle of, you know, pick your spear, whether it's whiskey or vodka or gin now, tequila. And that bottle's preserved. The RTD side has, even canned wine has helped subside that. But at the end of the day, the casual drinker will continue to diminish, unfortunately. And then the next step, God forbid, would be if the FDA actually ever put calories on the back of a label. And well, ingredients, and that's a whole other about episode. That. But... I think people think wine is a lot more caloric than it actually is. It's 120 calories a glass. And if they saw how many grams of sugar were in a glass, I think you'd see a big problem. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it depends on the wine, right? How many grams. Right. So think of the categories that would really get hurt by all grams the bottom of tier. sugar on a bottle. Yeah, all and, the bottom right? tier in the dessert all those wine. All those additives there, right? So from that side, it's a dangerous world we live in. And then when you go to the other end of the spectrum, really priced ourselves out. I mean, you look at first growth Bordeaux, you look at top Burgundy, those wines are inaccessible. They're just commodities now. And they, and they were considered commodities at $200 a bottle. Now they're right. $2,000 a bottle. What are they? Nobody really drinks those wines anymore, unfortunately. They were meant to be drunk. You know, this goes back to originally how wine price becomes X. And producers are generally seeing that margin. Right. When you look at a DRC or a Rousseau or a Rumier, the wine, when it's sold, and even in many cases, when it goes through the system, it's not often not even that bad. It's just when it hits the aftermarket. So you got the low end that's kind of vanishing and you got the high end and there's never any middle class of anything. Where we're headed is, is a bit dangerous, I think, at the moment. And then when you couple it with consolidation and every time a winer gets bought, the price has to go up because the cost right. of admission is higher, right? So prices don't go down when wineries get bought. You buy something in Napa Valley, it's only going to go up. So. Right. I th I'm much more hopeful because I do think that we're going to skim off a lot of the casual drinker. But I think that the core group and we see this from like data in the 90s and early 2000s when you first started, those are the people that will still drink wine. So if we have 77 million people drinking wine, even if it got down to 50 million, that's still a pretty big market. And those people are truly dedicated to wines and they're truly dedicated to learning about wine. So in some ways, just because of what I do, I love the passion. You know, I love people who want to learn and who appreciate the producers and the smaller producers. To me, I've never seen the shrinking of the wine market be necessarily a bad thing because if it takes off the bottom and the top, then what you're left with is a product that 
People who have enough passion for the hobby, for the art, they will stick with it. But is it necessarily a bad thing that people are getting white wine wasted or whatever? That's just not what this product is for. So in some ways, I think it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, we certainly don't want to see people taking a product that takes a year to make or more and so much effort and so much time. And we appreciate it so much just using it to get wasted, which is very disappointing, frankly. I'm not jumping ship. So, you know, there's always hope there. I just, it's just a bit disappointing the trends we're seeing. It is. I think it's a market correction though. That's how I'm looking at it. All right. Many of you in the U.S. can order wine from Daniel. Go to Grapes the Wine Co. Grapes the Wine Co.com. And you can look at his really very thoughtful and curated selection. It is amazing the amount of knowledge that this man has, obviously, and the amount of experience and connections. And I just appreciate you being here and sharing all of this great information with people, things that people wonder about but never really know. So thank you so much for being here. A real pleasure. And with that, this has been another episode of Wine for Normal People. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. 